Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Debbie Millman, the author of the new awesome book, Why Design Matters. She's been named as one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company and named as one of the most influential designers working today by Graphic Design USA, which is some pretty incredible claims to have. She's also one of the OGs of podcasting. Over 17 years ago, in 2005, she started a podcast. We thought we were dinosaurs, but she's got us covered by 3X um, with uh, one of the biggest and best podcasts of all time, Design Matters, which iTunes called just uh, this year one of their all-time favorite podcasts. And uh, not surprising, she's an absolute superstar. We love chatting to her. Um, She's so interesting, so we know you're going to enjoy this one. So, let's get into it. Debbie Millman. Woo! Thanks so much, Debbie. We'll get right into it. Okay. So, uh, your book has just come out and it's a phenomenal and beautiful looking book as a lot of people would expect who know your background. Um, love to start the interview by just uh, asking you why does design inspire you and how did this end up being your career calling? Well, it inspires me because design is about intention, about very deliberate intention about how you want to make or do or create or behave in any way. And so everything that we wear, everything that we adorn ourselves with, the the things that we choose to surround ourselves with, all of these things signify something about us. Um, They help define our beliefs, they help signal our affiliations, and even the things that are intentionally non-designed are still intentionally non-designed. So these are decisions that we make every single day of our lives. And I'm endlessly fascinated by what goes into making those choices and what goes into um, creating the the lives that we lead with the objects and the things that surround us. Um, In terms of how I got into it, oh my goodness, that was completely (laughs) by accident. I I thought I was going to be a journalist Um, Started working at my college newspaper. Part of the duties as the as one of the editors was putting the paper together, old school style, very OG. Uh, We're talking early '80s here, and that was my only marketable skill when I graduated college, and the only way that I found to make money. And so I've been doing it ever since. (laughs) Nice. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll dive a bit uh, deeper into all of that as well. But design is like it's. It could apply so broadly, like designing a logo, designing a package, uh, designing a brand or as well like designing an experience or designing a course or uh, even designing a life. Mm -hmm. Um, How how do you think of all those things and I guess which areas do you sort of play in 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 design? Well, my, my career has been in graphic design and brand design and so that's what I think that people would know me best for. Um. But I think that all of the way in which we make the choices to include the things that we do in our lives, that part is, from a a sort of philosophical and theoretical perspective, what I'm most interested in now. Yeah, fantastic. And so a big part of your life has been designing brands. Um, I guess for a novice like myself, when it comes to design, like what, what is a brand? Like what, what constitutes it? That's a really good question. And one that's been debated quite a lot of over the last, I'd say 100 years, particularly in the last 10, I believe that a brand is 
manufactured meaning, human-created manufactured meaning. And we make some type of product, experience, um, event, etc., and then we assign meaning to that. And we do that with symbols and language and behavior. Um, I think that we then design those brands using very deliberate differentiation to separate one thing from another. We then promote that thing, and based on consensus, we will decide to either believe it or not believe it. It's a behavior, though, that's almost as old as humans are in terms of being modern humans in that we were manufacturing meaning using symbols far back as 10,000 years ago when we started to create emblems to signify our religious beliefs. There's really no tribe in all of recorded human history that has not created some type of relationship between a higher power and themselves utilizing some type of symbol. And while I think that there's a branded component to these things, and they certainly are brands, they're also much more than that, but they use all of the tenets of branding that Nike uses or that Apple uses or that Starbucks uses or um, some of the more heinous um, movements in our history, including the Nazis with the swastika. The swastika was actually a, a symbol that was created millennia ago by the, um, it's actually taken from the Sanskrit word swastika, which actually means good fortune and good health and well-being. Um, it was only appropriated by the Nazis. Um, the Jain tribe used it in a hand of God symbol that they had. The Boy Scouts used it in some of their communications in the 1920s. Coca-Cola created a bottle opener using the swastika back before it was appropriated. So it was on cigars. It was on playing cards. It was on poker chips. I mean, that's how uh, prevalent this symbol was in, in our history. But it's only when it was appropriated by Hitler that it became a symbol beyond any kind of redemption. So these are all symbols that we've created, we've manufactured to create an understanding of a very specific construct that we also create. Yeah, I don't think we'd be seeing it on too many Coke bottles uh, in 2022. Yeah. <laughs> so. people ever. I don't think that this is a mark that will ever no. be able to be redeemed in any way. No, I don't think so either. Um, am, I, am I right in saying that you can uh, claim credit for the first ever Masters of Branding uh, course? Is it in the world? Yeah, it is in the world. Barcelona has a program as well, but we were the first. Nice. There are many, many, many more now because I thought I think people saw that there was a real opportunity to be able to create this kind of program with quite a lot of, of interest anywhere. Um, but yes, we, we started, I, I was asked by Steve Heller, uh, my mentor, one of the most prolific uh, design critics and writers and art directors of our time, if I would be interested in working with him to develop a master's in branding at the School of Visual Arts back in 2007. And he had already started his own master's program. Uh, he started a master's program in um, an MFA in design in, I would say, at least 20 to 25 years ago. Um, and then he was tasked by the president at 
at SVA, David Rhodes, to help create several new, more progressive um, programs. And so one of those that, that he started, co-founded, was, was the one with me. And so we, we started planning it in 2007, took a couple of years to get a Department of Education approval and accreditation and all of that. We started the program, the first program in 2010, graduated our first cohort of students in 2011, and are still running the program now today. Nice. Well, to say you're a, a, a branding expert is probably an understatement then. Um, but I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of your, your bugbears is the evolution of the personal brand oh, yeah. uh, and, and how the idea of uh, branding and people trying to apply that to themselves is maybe misled. Can you give us a bit of a rant on why a personal brand isn't uh, maybe as, as shiny or as pretty as what people think they, they should be doing? Well, first, can we rewind a little second? What was the word that you used? A bed bug? A brand? A, uh, a, what was a bug bear. Is that a, a thing? I've never, heard, I've never heard of that term. I, I love that. I am so, so... Let me see. Maybe I just made up, a, maybe I, I made up a phrase. Let me just do a quick Google. No, bug no, no. Bear. I love it. Either way, it's now <laughs> a A cause of obsessive fear, anxiety, or, or irrationality. Okay. I don't know if that's... <laughs> Thank you. I love it. I don't know if that was quite what I was going for, but uh, maybe we can go with that. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Well, I think that if, if we go back to what I was saying about brands being manufactured meaning, that then logic then leads us to if somebody wants to be a personal brand, then it's just a manufactured persona. I think people can own brands. I think people can make brands. They can create brands. They can distribute brands. They can do all sorts of things. They can manage brands. They can do all sorts of things. But the difference between a brand and a person is that a brand can't do anything without direction from a human. Brands don't breathe. They don't have a consciousness. As much as we'd like to sort of project one into them and anthropomorphize many, they don't. They don't. They aren't living, breathing entities. And so the idea that someone would want to take on the persona of a brand when they're not living, breathing identities means that you are manufacturing a moment frozen in time that can't really engage with other humans in a human-to-human manner. I think that people can own brands, but what they should work on in terms of their own selves is their reputation and their character. You can build a reputation, you can build a character, but to build a personal brand feels to me like an oxymoron. Brands aren't personal. They're manufactured for people to use and abuse and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. But the idea that you can have a living, breathing relationship with a brand is short-sighted and just not possible. So that's my, my little soapbox statement. <laughs> I like it. I think back to when we started our podcast, or pretty much like anything, maybe a lot of people created at the beginning, we weren't very deliberate at all with our branding. It was sort of like an a, emergent thing that came through the process and and it just sort of appeared. Do you see um, branding as something that's like a very deliberate approach what you actually take a step back and design or is it is there an element of it just emerges out of actually doing things and it sort of just, just appears? No. See, that's that's the thing about brands. Brands will do nothing unless they're directed to do so. 
and they're directed to do so by humans that make these things happen. You know, they're like puppets in a lot of ways. Um, so I don't think that, I, I think that there's a lot of ways we can use brands to benefit society. So for example, the same way that we created symbols that signified Catholicism or Judaism or Buddhism or Islam, we're creating the same symbols to signify the Nike tribe or the Starbucks tribe. But we're also, also beginning once again, the way we did originally to create marks for movements and symbols that telegraph behavior. So Black Lives Matter or Me Too, they are also using these movements or using the tenets of branding that the same way that Coca-Cola is, but they're doing so without requiring um, people to pick them off a shelf in a supermarket or to re have a return um, to their shareholders. This is something that people are creating for people in order to inspire cultural or behavioral change in the same way that humans 10,000 years ago were beginning to develop religious symbols for people, by people, distributed for free among people to signify what they believed in. This is a, this is a behavior that I find endlessly fascinating. Why do we do these things? Why do we create these ways of developing communication constructs that allow us to understand where we stand in the world and what we believe in? Nice. So you were the you you had the first uh, first in the world masters of branding. I think you you can claim the first ever uh, podcast about design as well. And that was what we're into what seventeen eighteen years now. Yeah, it'll be. Um, so I started the podcast in two thousand five. So so yeah, oh, seventeen years old in in February of twenty twenty two. So yeah, it's one of the longest running podcasts. In history at this point, I think there's maybe five or six of us that are still podcasting from that were that had started back in 2005. And uh, it's something that I never anticipated or expected to happen in this way. So it's one of those accidental gifts of a lifetime. That's incredible because, yeah, podcasting almost wasn't even a thing then. Like, uh, I don't know if people even knew what a podcast podcast was um how did you like become one of the the first and and remain one of the only handful of five or six people that was you know that is still podcasting now that started off this whole podcasting thing well i started um i created the show on a, a at, the, at a then fledgling internet radio network called voice america which is different than voice of america this is voice america and it was for their business channel and i started it was a live show um, it had all the hallmarks of uh, Wayne and Garth, Wayne's World episode. <laughs> um, it was just rather gruesome and and not a comedy show, but it could have. <laughs> <laughs> the sound was really terrible and I had no idea what I was doing. I really did it at the time because everything else I was doing was really commercial and I wanted to try to reignite some of my creative spirit, which I believed at the time was was might might have been sort of dying. And so it was a bit of a Hail Mary with my creativity, but it seemed like a fun thing to do. I was offered what I thought was a job with Voice America. I thought they were hiring me as a talk show host, but they were not. They were offering me an opportunity to pay them to <laughs> produce 
a radio show, but that's how desperate I was at the time for do, to do something creative again. Um, it was like a real vanity project and, and as I said, quite gruesome to listen to, but I put my whole heart and soul into it. And I think because at the time there was nothing else like that for designers, people did want to listen to the show and, and were interested in, and certainly what my guests were saying. Um, I then uh, began to upload the show to iTunes because the show was live, which meant you could, you'd have to be tethered to your computer at the time in order to be able to listen to it. Or you could try to schedule your day to maybe listen to a rerun in the wee hours of the morning. And so my friend Brian Gomez Palacio, one of the founders of the, the first design blog, Speak Up, was uh, really instrumental in inspiring me to begin to upload the digital files to iTunes back in, I guess, April or so of 2005, uh, so that people could download the show as if I were an indie musician and listen to it whenever they wanted. There was no podcast section on iTunes at the time. Uh, there was shortly thereafter, I would say several months later. And I remember the thrill and the glee that I felt seeing that I was in the top 100, in the ratings for the top 100 podcasts. But I don't think there were more than 100 at the time. <laughs> so being number 82 was not really that much of a, of a feat. Um, yeah. so, you claim it for yeah, sure. You claim that yeah. forever. Top 100 podcasts. We'd be yeah, we'd be yeah, slapping right? it all over the social media. <laughs> yeah. um, but at the time, I also was. Re- people didn't understand what a podcast was. Like people would say, "What do you do?" And you know, one of the things I would say is, "You know, I host this podcast." And like, what's a podcast? <laughs> and so it went from 17 years ago, people being like, "Huh," to now people are being, "Oh, yeah, yeah." I see, yeah. You, you and five million other people. Yeah. I'm original. <laughs> yeah, it's been funny that like, yeah, early days was like so special when you told someone you do a podcast and he's so yeah. interested in now. But they, they probably know your podcast, so it's a bit different. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'd be surprised just because there are so many, I think, you know, it, the design community is is very aware but beyond that i'm not so sure uh <laughs> even though it's really grown beyond design at this point but i i don't know um it's it still gets that huh you and five other five million other people nice good good going there. <laughs> yeah i totally get that well 16 it's so that's so crazy that time i thought we were veterans i mean you must have <laughs> oh, we totally get it like the starting point you just you're just winging it but then over time you obviously iterated and iterated and you would have learned a fair bit. So what are the, the, the most important things you've learned along the way to improve your style and, and the way you've been running your podcast? Oh, I've learned so many things. You know, doing nearly 500 interviews at this point, um, you learn things. You also tend to learn things the hard way because you're learning on the job in public. But that's also something that I think is really valuable for other people that are looking to learn something to see that anyone can evolve if they do it long enough. Um, some things that I that I've learned um, is that you, when conducting an interview, you have to view it as as an art and a skill. Both. It's an art in that there's a real way to navigate having a conversation that requires a certain level of empathy, a certain level of um, listening. And it's also something that you can get better at the more you do it. It's not something like, 
it's not like an athletics prowess that you age out of or being a supermodel and aging out of it or being a mathematician or a scientist. You know, many, many people think that once you pass 30, you're beyond the, the place of being able to discover something really noteworthy in the world, that, that your brain power has peaked. Interviewing skills can always be learned and always be developed. Um, I see a conversation an interview conversation, like a game of pool. And so what I mean by that, a game of billiards. In billiards, you not only want to get a billiard ball into the pocket of the pool table, you also want to leave the rest of the billiard balls on the table so that you can continue to shoot and get more billiard balls and more more pockets. And that's how you win the game. And so when I am playing with a person on, with an interview, what I try to do is learn so much about my guest that wherever they take the answer as, as a billiard ball analogy here, that I can follow them and then begin to ask questions about wherever they take me. And so I'm always continually working the table to be able to follow them to deeper, more meaningful conversation. Um, so it's not a, a volley. It's they're, they're really the leader and I'm following them. I'm in control of the interview, mm-hmm. but I'm following wherever they take me. Wow. I also, I, so that, that's one thing that I've learned. I've also learned that most people um, don't really know how to listen. And I learned this the hard way. Um, on my second interview, I interviewed a friend of mine, and this is back in 2005, and I thought it went pretty well. It was certainly better than the first one I did. <laughs> <laughs> I remember asking her how I did and expecting to get you know kudos and pats on the back, and she said, well, I think it would have gone a little bit better if you listened to what I was saying before <laughs> you queued up the next question in your mind. And so that really allowed me to understand that people talk, 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 talk. And then they stop talking for enough time to let somebody else say something. And then as soon as that person has finished saying something, they get begin talking, 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 talking again. And so for me, I've really had to learn to focus sort of deep, deep, deep focus on the person I'm talking to and just make every effort to listen to everything that they're saying so that I'm not really thinking about my next question so much as I'm listening to what they're telling me, which will then inspire where we go next. So that's, that's a skill I've really had to, to work on. And I think that ultimately there are no bad interviewees. There's only a bad interviewer who's sort of standing in their own way from being able to connect with someone if that person is somebody that they're not sure how to connect with. You know, I've had people that are really generous with their uh, conversation. You know, they want to, they want to go everywhere. They want to experience everything. They want to talk about everything. They're excited about my research. They're excited about talking about their work in this really in-depth way. And then there are other people that are shy or introverted or embarrassed about talking about themselves. And, those are much more difficult interviews and I've had to learn how to calibrate my own energy in an effort to try to connect with them on their terms, not on my own. And that's also something that I've had to learn over time. One other thing I've had to learn is to not 
feel like I have to say "Mm mm-hmm or yes or "Uh uh-huh through everything that somebody is saying in order for them to understand that I'm listening and connecting, that I can sit there and just by sort of the way I nod my head or the way that I'm looking at them, they know I'm connected. And that I was told by Hillman Curtis when I was the director of the video that I did with uh, Lawrence Wiener. Um, Hillman finally sort of pulled me over to the side and said, you don't need to say, mm-hmm, Lawrence says, just nod and smile. <laughs> I was like, okay. So that's another thing that, that I had to learn. Um, what else can I tell you? There's so many things. I mean, it's just a, an extraordinary experience learning how to have a conversation and the act of generosity mm-hmm. that is inherent in anybody that you talk to that's willing to trust you with their, with their life in, in that moment. Literally and figuratively. I just laid out an accidental. I know sometimes I feel like a bobblehead that I'm just. Yeah. It was in my head. I was like, "Yeah, don't, don't do it, don't do it." Yeah. <laughs> one, one of the things I feel like you've got a really interesting voice, the way you speak, and I think that's really um, important for some podcasters. Like I think like Joe Rogan and some of the other biggest podcasts out there, they've got just a easy to listen to voice. So do you think over time? Has this been something you've, you've – is it always been like it is now or is it something that you've actually – you've developed along the way at all or is it always just been, you know, Debbie's voice is Debbie's voice? Well, I definitely have a, a slightly huskier um, tonality when I'm, when I'm doing a radio show. There's something about being in front, of a radio, in front of a microphone and having the headphones on. You know, it's a very intimate experience. Um, so I do feel like there's definitely a, a huskier quality to my voice when I'm doing radio. Um, I've made every effort to try to eliminate as much of my uh, Long Island, New York, Staten Island accent, but I'll leave it for you and your audience to tell me if I have. I doubt <laughs> that I have. I think it's slightly softened, but who knows? But but yeah, I do I do work to have a a, a voice that doesn't grate on people and and doesn't go into registers that, that dogs might find offensive. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, and from your, you know, 17 years of, of podcasting and hundreds of guests, uh, you managed to boil that down to a, a few dozen, a smaller, a smaller handful of some of your favorites that you've put into your brand new book. Uh, how did you manage to whittle it down from so many awesome guests uh, to, you know, a, a dozen awesome guests that you've managed to pluck out for the book? Well, it was challenging, I have to say. I went, I I started with, well, I have a a, a library of maybe between 450 and 500 episodes at this point. And they were much, 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 much shorter when I first started. So they would, my interviews would go about 35 to 45 minutes. Now they can go to an hour and a half. A typical hour and a half interview transcribes to about 10,000 words. And I was contracted to do a 70,000 word book. So that was not going to fly. I couldn't have seven interviews in the book. Um, I really looked to have a couple of dozen. So I have, I think, about 55 or so, as well as some essays. I have essays. There are some essays by Roxane Gay, Tim Ferriss, Maria Popova, Steve Heller, and Zach Pettit. So there's five wonderful, wonderful essays, as well as something that I've written just about the history and my experience of doing the show for as long as I have. 
But what I needed to be able to do in order to include as many people as possible was edit and condense the interviews in a way that eliminated material, but still kept kind of the inherent integrity intact. I wanted to be able to have something that was extractable, but still felt like it had a a soul to it and a wholeness to it. And so I sort of limited myself to about 4,000 words max. So some are as small as 1,500 and others go up to about 4,000. So there needed to be an an extractable piece that really felt meaningful, that it had some sort of purpose, some sort of revelation by the guests that would feel very universal. I wanted them to be, I wanted the interviews included to be timeless and not based on a specific body of work or the United States election or something specific in the news at that moment. So it had to be something that could really stand the test of time and be more about sort of the emotionality of the person as opposed to one specific event or achievement. Um, I also wanted originally to do a photo shoot. I was going to go around the country and just take photos of all of the people that I could that were included in the book. And then COVID happened. And not only was I prevented from coming to Melbourne back in March of 2020, which was a real disappointment, I also then had to figure out a different way to deliver my book on time. And what I ended up doing was a tremendous amount of photo editing and had to find photography that I felt would work in a coffee table book that was that was big enough and had a high enough resolution to still be beautiful. And this was the critical point. I needed to be able to see the soul of the person in their eyes. Like I wanted anybody that was looking at this photo and they're all full face, full frontal photograph portraits, portraits of people. So you don't really see very many in the book that are full body at all. It's mostly just shoulders up. There's a few exceptions, but not many. And I wanted there to be this palpable sense of, of seeing the guest, the person and, and seeing the story of their life in their face. And that was hard. (laughs) That was really hard to do. It was really expensive to do because I ended up having to buy photographs from some of the best photographers in the world and go through their archives to try to find something that wasn't seen a million times before so that there would be a sense of originality to the book and not, oh, I've seen this photo a million times online or in other books and so forth. So that became one of the challenging, most challenging aspects, but also one that I really enjoyed. Um, it took me back to my college days of putting the paper together and having to sort of find everything to be able to illuminate a story. And so I actually enjoyed that part a lot, a lot more than I would have thought. Yeah, it's so uh, the, the images, the resolution, it's just such a beautiful book. So you've got different categories. You've got, you've got all the, the guests you've had um, in the book and the first category is is heroes and you start with, this might be blasphemy for the people in the design community, but it's a name, Asher might know the name, but you start with Milton Glazer and I'm, I'm sure this is someone who's been um, special for you. So why is he the first profile in the book and what's what's been inspirational from him? Well, Milton Glaser was not only one of the greatest designers of the 20th and 21st century, he passed away last year at 91. Um, He was also my teacher. 
and um, really fundamentally changed my life with his teaching. He also was the chair of the board of directors of the School of Visual Arts and ultimately had to give the final approval for my program being approved at SVA. And so he had a tremendous, tremendous impact on my life. I've interviewed him several times. This this interview was the first interview I did with him on Design Matters on the show in that first year in 2005. And so I wanted to start the book with an episode from that first year. And Milton was by far the best. And I felt that given his place in my life, that there was a real significance to having him start the journey through this book. He also talked a lot about what he developed in in his lifetime as an article that he wrote called The 12 Steps on the Road to Hell, which were steps that designers take while doing their work to either excuse or rationalize their behavior sometimes in accepting certain kinds of work with certain kinds of clients. And that really resonated with me given my work in mainstream branding. And and so I did want to include that for that reason. I think it's a, a really valuable takeaway for anybody reading the book. Like that's almost price of entry in that you get to hear him talk about the this really meaningful personal roadmap to guiding his behavior in the world. Fantastic. Um, the the book, uh, we got the digital sneak peek of the book and it looks amazing and I'm sure it would look even better in physical on the on the coffee table as well. So uh, we're looking forward well, to I'm checking gonna that I'm going to be in Australia well. in March so maybe I can oh, handle perfect. it. <laughs> oh, definitely. Um, yeah, please do. Um, just m- much like the uh, Design Matters podcast sort of started as uh, – literal design and graphic design and kind of shifted towards designing a life. We've sort of tried to take that same arc in this episode. We started with a uh, literal design, graphic design, designing a brand and shifting now uh, towards designing a life. Um, you've had some amazing opportunities and amazing stories where uh, you've kind of put yourself in a position or not put yourself but worked yourself into a position to have opportunities come your way uh, and then very quickly and very decisively seizing those opportunities it sounds like uh, the, the the stories I'm thinking about is like Ironic Chef uh, the first your first book you did How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer um, can you tell us a little bit about how you sort of worked your way into a position to receive opportunities and then and then seize them once they did present themselves that's a great question. I've never really thought of myself as seizing opportunities. I've always thought of myself as begging for opportunities <laughs> and and mostly being rejected and just doing it enough time so that people finally just gave up and gave them to me. I remember, I think Sandra Bullock said something like that when she finally got her Academy Award for Best Actress. She's like, she just wore everybody down so that they'd give her a job. And I kind of feel the same way. I just wore everybody down with my resilience and just like, she's not going to go away. <laughs> so give her this little thing. She'll go off and do it and stop bothering us. Um, I really, truly feel like a lot of what I've done just comes from my just sticking around and, and just bothering people. Um, because so much of what I've done has, has been because of the rejection and because of the various failures. And these were almost as Ricky Lee Jones would say, last chance Texaco's, you know, I, if I don't do this then there's really nothing else, so I might as well just stick around and do it. Um, but, and so I appreciate you, you sort of seeing it more as seizing the opportunity, um, 
I didn't really start to manifest any kind of real success until I was well into my 40s. I did have professional success working in branding, but for the most part, aside from the financial success, a lot of people in the design community and the design industry really looked down on branding in the 90s, all through the 90s. And even into the early 2000s, when I was very publicly called out on Speak Up, on the, on the blog Speak Up for being a, a corporate clown and a, and a she-devil because of what I did. Um, and at the time, that was, I can't even explain how hurtful that was and how in that moment, back in 2003, when that, when that happened, I really considered leaving the industry because I did feel like the most hated person, the most made fun of person in, in the industry. Um, and for whatever reason, rather than retreat in that experience, I joined in and ultimately had a, a, a really meaningful conversation with the people, the very people that were um, trying to take me down. And that experience led to my writing for Speak Up that Writing for Speak Up directly led to my experience writing for Print Magazine, which directly led to my experience meeting Steve Heller, which directly led my, to my experience of getting my first book offer and the branding program. Steve suggested to his publisher that they call me after he turned down the offer to write How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer, which became my first book. Um, by the way, sort of sidebar comment, I still think that's the, maybe the worst title of any book <laughs> in the history of all books, because there's no one way to think like a graphic, a great graphic designer. I went back to the publisher because at the time I thought this could be my one and done. You know, I might only get this one book opportunity for the rest of my life. And so I can't say no, but maybe I could say yes, but <laughs> and we keep the title, but make it sort of cheeky um, and, and talk to lots of great graphic designers and see the myriad ways that they speak and think and offer that to readers. But you'll still every now and then a, a review will pop up on Amazon for that book with the comment like, I don't understand. I thought this was a, a book about how to think like a great graphic designer, <laughs> like a menu. But, um, you know, Americans. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot more stinker titles out there. I think that's, uh, I think that, I don't have it on the shelf yet. I'm, I'm definitely going to get that, though. It's lured me in. <laughs> that's good. Um, so we, obviously do a podcast about books we go through book summaries all the time and everyone who listens absolutely loves books so you see where the next question's coming probably but uh what are the the best books out there on design um i guess for people who are just uh novices like myself and just you know stepping into it and probably the more advanced end of the spectrum as well so yeah two different categories there um well i would say that maybe rather than specific books because people are at different levels. I'd rather talk to specific writers because mm -hmm. I think that the writers that I'm going to recommend are do write books at, for every level. 
ironically. Um, so somebody like Steve Heller. Steve Heller has written over 200 books about graphic design. And so there's books about how to teach graphic design, how to make magazines, how to make books, how to handle failure. Um, he has a great book about the swastika and how the swastika is beyond uh, redemption. He has books on political movements. He's a remarkable, remarkable writer who has the ability to really look at any specific subject and talk about the sort of cultural, anthropological, uh, high altitude perspective, as well as sort of the nitty gritty design perspective. So I highly, highly recommend him. I would also recommend Ellen Lupton. Ellen Lupton has also written books for hardcore designers and typographers, but has also written a remarkable book with her sister, who's not a designer, who's a professor of literature about how to design a life. So I think the range of her books is also pretty extraordinary. Um, Chip Kidd has written a number of books. So he's written books in, in lots of different genres. So he's written several novels about what it's like to be a graphic designer. Uh, the Cheese Monkeys is loosely based on his own experiences at Penn State, and it's hysterical. So I would highly, highly recommend that. But he's also written a book for kids on how to design. It's a book called Go. And it's a remarkable book as a primer to graphic design, not just for kids, but really for anyone. And then he has two monographs, Chip Kid Book One, Chip Kid Book Two, that really take you through the um, the history of his experiences as a book designer, having designed some of the most remarkable book covers of our time, and how he really, without without being in any way um, pretentious about it, really changed the way books are designed. Um, Paul Sayre wrote a remarkable memoir in 1998 called Perverse Optimist, and it is a monograph of Tibor Kelman's work. And I think that's also a, a really, truly um, groundbreaking book. Actually, anything by Michael is worth reading. He's he's written a number of books. Some are a collections of essays he's written on Design Observer and in other publications, as well as a monograph called How To... And that also was just republished with a new introduction and, and more case studies. So I think that's probably a good start for people. Nice. I've read Chip Kids uh, Judge This. Um, so that's the only yeah. one of that of that entire list that I can I can at least point to that I've read, um, which was a, a good little introduction. Um, yeah. Outside and of the hysterically the... funny. I mean, this man should be yeah. a stand-up comedian. <laughs> Um, outside of the design books, are there any other books uh, that you can point to that have been influential on you, your your career, or the way you think, or the way you've you've lived your life? Well, anything by William Gibson. Um, he wrote a book, one of my favorite books. It's called Pattern Recognition, um, and it's it was written pre YouTube, and it's about footage heads people that make these little films and upload them to the internet. He's also, by the way, the the man that coined the term cyberspace. So William Gibson essentially predicts the future before it happens. Um, he also consulted on Minority Report. So he also has this way of seeing into the future and not necessarily predicting mm -hmm. Facebook per se, but predicting the behavior, which I think is just absolutely fascinating. So uh, Pattern Recognition is really one of my favorite books of all time. 
And it really talks about the role that advertising has on our psyches and how messaging reaches the limbic part of our brain, which is that part of the brain that searches for connection. So that, that would be one book that I highly recommend. Yeah, I'm so stoked for that one. That sounds so interesting. I've, I haven't heard it, so I'm 100% going to get into that. Love it. Well, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Debbie. It's been we've learned so much in this interview. Um, uh, before we we go, what's what's next for you, and uh, what sort of projects are on the horizon? Um, or are you still just keeping on, keeping on? Uh, keeping on, keeping on for sure. I'm about to go on an expedition to Antarctica to see the total wow. solar eclipse of the sun there. Um, that's been a, a lifetime dream. Well, maybe not a lifetime dream. I'll say an adult dream to, to go to Antarctica. <laughs> and I saw that there was, in 2017, there was an, an, a total solar eclipse over North America. But in the part of North America that I was in, we could only see a partial. And so I decided at that point I wanted to try to find a total solar eclipse of the sun that I could witness and went to you know something like totalsolareclipseofthesun.com where they were all going to be over the next couple of years and saw that there was going to be one in Antarctica in 2021. Four years ago, I discovered this and decided at that point that I was going to try to go. And so now I'm going. And uh, then when I come back, I'll go back into book launch uh, hysteria to try to get the little word out that this book is coming. Awesome. Um, That's super exciting. Well, where can people find more about you and your brand new book? Uh, Well, definitely my website, debbiemillman.com or Instagram, where the same, at debbiemillman. I'm also the editorial director of print magazine, printmag.com, and I post my podcast there as well as two columns that I write. One is called What Matters, and that is interviews with people about what matters in their lives and how they think about achievement and success and hope and rejection. And then an advice column that I started (laughs) called Dear Design Martyrs, which is about how to handle crises in the design community. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, It's been an absolute pleasure uh, and all the best. Enjoy Antarctica. Thank you. Thank you. It was such an honor to be here. 